from South Florida. The Brian Mudd Show starts right now. Now, now. News Radio 610 WIOD. Unfortunately, thus far, many of Judge Jackson's responses have been evasive and unclear. And old Mitch McConnell is talking about that in my top three takeaways. And Rick Scott positioning himself, perhaps, perhaps, to be the next Senate majority leader as the brewing battle between those two. But, of course, he's referencing there the hearing as we yesterday we had our second and final day of questioning for nominee Ketanji Brown-Jackson. And coming up at 11.50 in today's Q&A of the day, how liberal is she? What exactly would she do to the court? You know, it's been this oversimplification that, well, if you replace one liberal briar with another, you know, Brown Jackson, then it's a wash. Well, not really, because you now you have split decisions that go in many different respects. And Breyer was actually the most moderate of the so-called liberal wing of the court. And so having somebody to his left does have the impact to shift the court a bit. So we'll get into all that. I, uh, I've broken it down for you comprehensively. But to get some analysis on all this and also talk a little bit um, about voter fraud, something that they've been working on, Public Interest Legal Foundation. Joining us once again, Jay Christian Adams, Commissioner on the U.S. Commission of Civil Rights and the President of the PILF. How are you, sir? Good to talk with you again. Hey, good morning. So let's start with uh, let's start with the... The Supreme Court nominee. What do you make of of her, and what do you make of the the hearings thus far? Look, Biden picked her because she's a hardcore progressive leftist, and he 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 made it pretty clear who calls the shots in the administration. He had an option, you know, he could have picked Judge Michelle Childs, who's on the federal court in South Carolina, but uh, that was the choice of Jim Clyburn, the the you know majority leader in the House from South Carolina. But he chose somebody who's from the Ivy League, from the D.C. establishment, from the far-left progressive wing of the party, and she's doing everything she can to hide that in these hearings. She's very good at it. One is left with the impression that she doesn't know much, she doesn't have any beliefs, but in reality, she's just very good at hiding how out of touch her beliefs are. And so this this is... so, for example, you know, if we take specific moments that have come up in these hearings, like when she was not willing to provide the definition of a woman, or she flat out said, I don't know when life begins, you believe that wasn't necessarily, you know, she she's really just ignorant or really doesn't have strong opinions uh, or, or feelings that could enter the equation, but instead it was her making sure she she wasn't too revealing in those moments. Well, right, but even take her answer to, I don't know. Well, that's in keeping with the progressive uh, uh, transgender ideology that we don't know what a woman is. It's very confusing and complicated. So, well, our, uh, well Republicans and conservatives interpret her answer as stupidity, what they really need to do is realize she's telling the truth. She's telling you exactly about the moral ambiguity of defining gender. And so what seems to us to be an answer that betrays ignorance is, in fact, a truthful answer. Don't forget, she served on the board of Georgetown Day School when it approved, essentially, child drag queens showing up to school. 
second graders, third graders, boys dressing in dresses. So, look, she's all in on this. And when she answers the question, I don't know what a woman is, she's being truthful because she comes from a world and a culture where these lines are being obliterated between men and women. And, and, and so, I, you know, I hear that answer, and I don't think she's stupid. I think she's truthful. Speaking to Jay Christian Adams, again, Public Interest Legal Foundation and the U.S. Commission on Civil, of Civil Rights. And there was one moment came up in the first AA hearings that stood out to me more than any other, just in terms of a potential tell. Because to your point, uh, I think you're spot on that she has been good at not being overly revealing, at least overtly, and has been playing her cards close to the best, often saying things, in fact, that many on the right would would want out of a justice, including, you know, hey, uh, I'm, I'm very you know conscientious about my lane, staying in my lane, the role of the court. But in an answer that she provided to Senator Dianne Feinstein on abortion, it wasn't her position or her answer to the you know, validity of, of abortion and, and Roe v. Wade as much as it was the role of the court. So I, I'm curious to see if you think I'm reading too much into this, but I don't think I am. She said that Roe and Casey were settled law of the Supreme Court. And, of course, you know, the Supreme Court does not create law, and those were decisions that were precedent-setting. Uh, you know, I, I interpret that to mean... She views the the court as one that is a policymaker, right? Well, and and it's it's like she uh, she missed the last year where the Supreme Court took certiorari in the cases involving when life begins and when. In other words, they were settled law a year ago, but they might not be settled law in July right. of this year. So uh, it was an easy dodge once again, but it also at the same time. Uh, it made her seem reasonable in the sense that she wasn't going to be an activist judge, so she speaks to uh, judicial activism, but in reality, she's once again telling you the truth of what she really believes, and that, that uh, the, the, it tells you how she would decide, right? And the very issue in front of the Supreme Court right now is, is Roe actually settled law? Is Casey really settled law? And it looks like there's at least five justices who answer the question, no. And thank goodness she's not going to be on the court making that decision. Although then uh, then again we have, have what will soon be a new law in Florida. They'll also have 15 weeks, so no doubt be legally challenged, and perhaps that will end up before uh, yeah, you know the court system as well. So, uh, yeah, it's now I appreciate your perspective. That's, that's a good answer. I, I want to switch gears now uh, to our state and you know our our state session is wrapped up and we did have a new election integrity law that did include a new election office a state office that's going to be uh, staffed with 25 people that will have the ability to investigate potential election fraud crimes across the state Uh, you know jay it became apparent when you brought to light at the beginning of december the 156 known referred voter fraud cases in our state that had not been pursued by state attorneys. I still have not had a single state attorney who's willing to talk to me um, about why they haven't pursued these cases. But, of course, many of which are right here in South Florida. Has there been any additional movement from what you've seen on any of these cases anywhere in Florida? 
No, and the report is called Safe Harbor. You can read it at the Public Interest Legal Foundation website. And you're right, and we've talked about this before, where all these county prosecutors, you guys call them state attorneys, never did anything about referrals from election officials. These aren't like, you know, some Tea Party group who uh, is sending in referrals. These are actually the county election officials sent over 130 referrals to state attorneys, and they just gathered dust. And and that's exactly why it was a good thing that the legislature passed a law to create a state investigative unit. And, and, And listen, don't lose sight of the fact there's about six people talking about this in Florida. Governor DeSantis, you, me, a couple others, and and many in the legislature, including the Republicans, opposed it. So thank goodness that common sense prevailed, and we're actually going to have a unit that's going to put the heat on election crimes, no matter who commits them, by the way. This is not a partisan issue, and uh, it's a good thing. Well, uh, and as we advance into this election year, and we've already had many local elections for communities in South Florida and across the state, but obviously heading towards the midterms, your report and your summation findings were revealing. I mean, that one of them, you know, was common sense that, hey, you know, uh, when you have people that get away with voter fraud, it begets more voter fraud. Uh, you know, that's just common sense. Uh, but the other, you know, you start getting into the willingness and and the rationale behind why this isn't being pursued. You evidenced that many of these state attorneys are not versed, that there aren't many people that are versed in how to pursue these cases. And, you know, that without action being taken, you know, this this problem could exacerbate. That's right. It's a complicated area of law. I've practiced it for 15 plus years, actually more than that now. Time flies. And... Uh, I and my colleagues at the Public Interest Legal Foundation, we could write a glossary of about 20 basic election law words, you know, terms like federal form, uh, citizenship attestation, things like that that are sort of technical, and give them to the state prosecutors in the county offices, and they probably would flunk the test. They don't know what they are. And so that's just understandable. They're used to burglars and, and, and murderers and, and those sorts of crimes. And so this is why creating a state office that specializes this, like Governor DeSantis uh, proposed and got passed, is a good thing. Yeah, no doubt about it. And I am absolutely grateful for your work and uh, keep on keeping on. Jay Christian Adams, Public Interest Legal Foundation Commissioner and the U.S. Commission of Civil Rights. Till next time, appreciate it. Thanks a lot. Bye-bye.